0: Bienvenidos and welcome to the histories of Mexico. Supplemental one point one. Secuadra avanza y Gol Mexicano, amigos. We declare victory. Hello and welcome to our first supplemental episode. I hope you are all as excited as I am to be here. I've just gotten done watching the season finale of my favorite show, the soccer tournament everybody watches. And boy, what an episode it was. I am going to spoil the ending a bit in this episode but honestly if somebody hasn't already ruined it for you I'd like to ask what rock you live under as I'd like to borrow it for whenever I want to escape the world for a few minutes. And you should really go and watch it, it's honestly an extremely entertaining affair despite the controversial issues with the production set and staff but that's a can of worms I have no intention whatsoever of touching. Instead, this episode will begin an exploration on the history of the men's national soccer team of Mexico, and some of their most memorable games in history. This will invariably cross into the history of the sport in the country, which will be our starting point, as well as the history of the Mexican Premier League, known as the Liga MX, and the various teams that participated in its storied past. In this episode, we will deviate from the shared history around the 1920s and tackle the subject of the Liga MX and its history in a separate episode. We will not cover every World Cup attendance of Mexico in extreme detail, but stop after the 1962 season for reasons that will become clear when we get there. There will also be an announcement at the end of the episode concerning future supplementals, so stay tuned for that and as always, don't forget the email. The histories of Mexico at gmail.com for all of your communicative needs. Now on with the show. Soccer or football honestly, both are accepted here on the podcast, had its early start in Mexico, thanks to a man few would have expected, the General Porfirio Diaz. Now, Porfirio is a complex man and one who will have a lot to do with lighting the kindling to a little conflict known as the Mexican Revolution. This time period is dominated by major inequality, coupled with the beginnings of rapid urbanization and an emerging and nascent Mexican identity clashing with that of a European identity, having only recently achieved full independence from the European countries that ruled it for so long. The nationwide tensions that resulted in the outbreak of war in 1910 were due in large part to the economic concessions Porfirio Diaz gave European powers to come and develop industries in Mexico from the beginning of his long reign. All this foreign investment was good for the president and his friends in the upper echelon of society's pockets. But effectively shoved many mixed-born Mexicans out of nearly every economically prominent sector, while the native Mexicans and indios had long since been pushed to the fringes of economic capabilities and many lived in rural villages tied to the land. With this backdrop, we introduced the many European workers brought over to run these newly acquired businesses of industry and manufacturing. Running such businesses as power and electric streetcar and railway operation, and most successful of all, mining. England would be one of these European countries granted lucrative tax breaks by the commander-in-chief of Mexico, Porfirio Diaz, and a mining company from Cornwall would win the highly coveted rights in 1824 to reopen the famous mines of Real del Monte, located in the mountains just north of Hidalgo's jewel, Pachuca del Soto. Pachuca itself is located in the central Mexican state of Hidalgo, just shy of 100 kilometers or 62 miles north of Mexico City. The city itself is dominated by the mountains that it is nestled along, and it would serve as a gateway to and from the mineral-rich mines located throughout the landscape, bringing substantial wealth to the mountainous city and the surrounding area. The Cornish miners who came to work at the Real del Monte cave system would intermingle with the locals, and, to this day, some locals in the community still cherish and celebrate their Cornish surnames and roots, including red hair and green eyes, despite some of them not speaking a lick of English. A Cornish engine house has even survived to this day and was converted into a bakery, which is now known for selling some famous pastries. By 1874, the number of mines in Mexico had increased to a staggering 500 and the Cornish mining companies had established a strong base in the Real del Monte system. It would be these miners we have to thank for their great contribution to the beautiful game in Mexico. They would start playing the first games and teach the local Mexicans the rules and sport, although in the early years the teams were mostly Europeans, as it would take some time for the sport to be picked up by the locals, and more importantly, the local children but it would be the Mexican-born children of these British immigrants that would make the leap from pastime and hobby to legitimately organized sport and competition. Alfred Charles Crowley would be one of these sons of immigrant workers. Specifically, his father Alfred Crowley is said to have brought the first soccer balls to Mexico and personally taught his fellow Mexican miners the rules, playing pickup games in the courtyard of the Mina Dolores. Eventually, a team was organized under the name of Real del Monte Pachuca Athletic Club on November first, 1892, soon shortened to just Pachuca Athletic Club. And this team is historically considered the first organized team on Mexican soil. Soon after, other English gentlemen began forming their own teams, including Robert J. Blackmore, who helped form and played on Reforma Athletic Club, officially formed in Mexico City, sometime in 1901, and Percy Charles Clifford, who helped found and captain the team known as the British Club, as a defender, but after the dissolution of the British Club, went on to play for the Rovers Football Club, and more importantly, continued in the sport after retiring as a player to become a highly successful coach of the mega-famous Mexican team of Club América. In the early years, however, the teams still maintained an air of sophistication that has long been lost to the sport. The British club in particular is said to have really leaned into the stereotypes we associate with the classy Brits, such as wearing elegant English outfits for their kits and even holding regular tea times at halftime on the sides of the pitch accompanied by beautiful ladies. These three men represent the most successful of these English immigrants forming teams within the budding immigrant communities in booming cities such as Puebla, Veracruz, Tlaxcala, Ciudad Mexico, and Pachuca. But as more and more highly specialized European workers, miners, and factory owners arrived, so too did increasing numbers of independent entrepreneurs and business owners of supportive industries such as doctors, lawyers, tailors, and shop owners followed them across the Atlantic to set up in these major Mexican cities, and many of these workers would come together in their off time to play their favorite pastime. With the additions of the railway and early communication lines, these nascent communities were further connected and able to maintain constant contact. At the same time, soccer was becoming increasingly popular in Europe, and with a hungry audience, railways to connect people so they can travel to and from to watch the games, and teams being formed in major cities across the nation, all the ingredients were there for the first professional soccer league in Mexico to materialize. Five teams would be selected to form the inaugural season of the newly formed Liga Mexicana de Futbol Amateur in 1902, which would go on to become the National Mexican Football League, and its governing body would become the agency we know today as the Mexican Football Federation. The five pioneering teams would be the aforementioned Hidalgan team of Pachuca Athletic Club. Hailing from Mexico City, there was Robert J. Blackmore's Reforma Athletic Club, the British club of Percy Charles Clifford, and the Mexico Cricket Club, while Orizaba Athletic Club was formed in Veracruz. The Mexico Cricket Club also holds the distinction as the oldest sporting club in Mexico, being established way, way back in 1827 by British immigrants hoping to get their cricket on. It is important to remember that very few Mexicans actually participated in this inaugural tournament which would see the Orizaba Athletic Club take home the title of historical first champions of Mexican soccer to their coastal state. Sadly, at the close of the following season, the Orizaba Athletic Club was disbanded and its players would move on to other ventures or join up with newly forming teams and while many of these original teams no longer exist, they had proven that a league centered around this sport could work and so the foundations of soccer in Mexico had been laid. Despite the turbulent years Mexico would be thrown into starting in 1910 with the sparking of the Mexican Revolution, various football teams would be formed but this time primarily teamed by native-born Mexicans such as Club de Fútbol México, formed by Alfredo B. Cuellar, Jorge Gómez de Prada, and Álvaro Sierra, as well as more foreign teams, including our first French team, Amical Français, in 1911, as well as the first Spanish teams, Rovers, and El Real Club España, forming in 1912, Centro Deportivo Español, in 1914. Eventually, German teams too would be featured, including the likes of Germania F.V. in 1915, Asturias F.C. in 1918, and Aurera in 1919. Immigrants were not the only ones busy forming clubs. Despite the battles raging in the countryside, Club América would also be formed during this time in 1916 by the union of two religious colleges, and they would be the first major soccer team in the capital integrated by native Mexican. Many of these teams would be added to the National Amateur League still going on since 1902, but in 1919, the league faced a life-threatening schism due to the expulsion of a single Veracruzan team called Club Tigres shortly after the start of the 1918-1919 season. It is not clear why the Tigres were kindly given the boot, But the result was that two clubs, España de Veracruz, Real Club España, also just called España, would also leave in solidarity with their fellow Spanish team, and in a childish bit of payback said, fine, you won't let us play in your park, looks like we'll just have to build our own park, and bitterly formed their own league, ironically calling it the Liga Nacional, or the National League. This league would prove an abject bust during its first season. Initially, it failed to entice over any teams from the officially recognized Mexican National League going on for 17 years now and equally lacked the legitimacy and recognition from the most important critics of all, the public. This did not deter the predominantly Spanish teams from their petty revenge and had they been any other group of men, this story might have just ended there. However, since Spain still held a sizable share of influence in the country it had recently owned and practically controlled the media at this time, it was able to wield its considerable power to nearly suffocate any news regarding the official league and its matches. Instead, these Spanish teams, led primarily by Club España, would set up a series of cup games and high-profile exhibition matches with other local European-led teams, in order to stay in shape and relevancy, managing to draw all media attention via their connections to these glorified friendlies. The result was that very little is known about the 1919-1920 Mexican League except that Pachuca Athletic won it, making it its third title since the founding of the league. The schism continued into the 1920-1921 season as the Liga Nacional managed to scrape together enough teams to hold the season, including España, Luz y Fuerza, Amical, El Reforma, and Club América. Meanwhile, the Liga Mexicana continued its league with participation from Asturias, Internacional, México, Morelos, and El Germania. This internal squabble was finally ended on the 23rd of August, 1922, when the two leagues finally settled their differences and united to create the Campeonato de Primera Fuerza de la FMF, or the Championship of the First Strength of the Federation of Mexican Football. This league would be the direct predecessor to the current First Division League in Mexico, the Liga MX, and after a series of cumbersome name changes, the association that was born from this league would expand its power the following year in 1923 and name itself La Federación Central de Fútbol or the Central Federation of Football and it would be this administrative body that would make the decision to create the first Selección Nacional or National Selection. Given that most of the teams in operation during this time featured mostly European players, Mexico had obviously not participated on the international stage, since most of the home countries of these players would call them up for their own squads or forbid them from playing in any naturalized status. Near the end of the year 1922, however, the Mexican ambassador of Guatemala, a man Juan de Dios Pohorques, invited the only fully Mexican team in the current Mexican league, Club América, to participate in a series of friendlies with the only local Guatemalan team made up of primarily native Guatemalan, the Comunicaciones Football Club. The matches would be played on January 1st, 4th, and 7th, 1923, with Club América winning the first match in a 3-2 thriller, losing the second match 3-1, and coming back to save face in the last match, convincingly winning 4-1. Before the matches began, the Guatemalan government officially recognized the Comunicaciones team as the Guatemalan national team. This, however, was not repeated on the Mexican side. Therefore, these matches are not officially recognized as the first foreign appearances of the Mexican national team. Yet, it absolutely represents the first foray of the budding national team into the international stage. The encounter had been a diplomatic success for Juan de Dios Porjorquez and the rematch between the two sides would be planned for December of the same year, 1923, to be held in Mexico City at the Parque España. This time, Mexico City would officially recognize their squad as Mexico's official national team, and the team would be coached by the first national coach, Adolfo Frias Beltran. He would build this team from the foundations of the Club America squad that played in Guatemala earlier that year, reinforcing it with the elements from newly established teams Atlanta and La Guerra y Marina. Named to his starting team was the keeper Ignacio de la Garza, defender Pedro Lefareta, and Rafael Garza Gutierrez, a.k.a. The Record, who also served as the captain. In the midfield, he had Enrique Esquivel, Aurelio Yanes, and Roberto Jardón. Up front, he went with Carlos Garces, Horacio Ortiz, Adeodaro Lopez, Cornelio Coneja Cuevas, and Maurio Guadarrama, who holds the distinction of being the first Mexican to score an international goal. This goal would come during the first match held on the 9th of December, 1923, when Mexico would beat Guatemala 2-1 and saw Mauro Guadarrama make Mexican history. Three days later, on the 12th of December, Mexico would again see victory this time shutting out the Guatemalan selection 2-0, and finally on the 16th, the final game would see the two teams evenly matched in a high-scoring 3-3 tie. Having just played its first official and unofficial match in history, the Mexican national team would remain relatively quiet for five years, playing a friendly match against Lithuania in 1924, boosting Mexican morale by blowing out the Lithuanians 10-0 then were brought back down to earth after being handed a 3-1 loss by Suriname, in another friendly held that same year. Its participation on the international stage would not happen for four years until it was invited to participate in its first international soccer tournament as one of the 17 teams playing in the Olympic Games of 1928, held in Amsterdam. Mexico's road to the Netherlands for the finals of the tournament would be rocky. Mexico, now coached by Alfonso Rojo de la Vega, would lose 7-1 to Spain at the Ciudad del Futbol de la Rosa Stadium in Madrid. The 30th of May 1928, however, would not only mark Spain solidifying its place in the next round of the Olympic Games, but would also go down in Mexican history as Mexico City native and Atlante FC's own Juan Carreno Lara would score Mexico's only goal of the match in the 76th minute, marking Mexico's first Olympic goal, first international competition goal, and first goal on European soil. And it would not be Juan Carreno Lara's last time making such history. Mexico would next play Chile and be fully eliminated from the tournament after a 3-1 loss to Los Rojos. At the close of the tournament, Italy would take bronze, Argentina silver, and Uruguay walked away with gold, successfully defending their title from the previous iteration of the games. The organizers of these soccer games would realize that they needed a tournament specifically for the sport, given the rise in popularity in both the European and American markets. And so a nascent FIFA Congress, presided over by French giant of the sport Jules Rimet, would hold a vote the day before the start of the 1928 Olympic Tournament, announcing that they would hold a new FIFA World Cup to be organized in 1930 and open to all member nations. Of the many countries to launch a bid to host this inaugural event, Uruguay would win over the rest, given that it would be celebrating a century since its first constitution, and their freshly won gold medal in Amsterdam would solidify them as the first host country in the tournament's history. The majority of the matches of the first World Cup in history in 1930 would be played in Uruguay's capital of Montevideo at the Estadio Centenario which was built specifically to commemorate the tournament. A total of 13 teams would participate with a significant lack of European representation Many would refuse to make the transatlantic trip to South America given the fact that the Great Depression was raging across the globe and most countries did not have the money to send their players to participate, coupled with emerging racially charged opinions beginning to take shape in international dealings. World War II is historically right around the corner, and it wouldn't be a stretch to say that countries like Germany or Italy and their fascist political parties were a bit upset that the game was being held in South America and not glorious and mighty Europe. As a result, only four would make the trip at the insistence of FIFA President Jules Rimet, the man whose name would soon be given to the trophy of this very competition. He managed through sheer force of character to convince France, Belgium, Yugoslavia, and Romania to travel, while Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Paraguay, Peru, Uruguay, and the United States would all join Mexico as representatives of North and South America. Japan and Siam, or Thailand, as it is nowadays called, would drop out being the only two Asian teams to pick up the phone and Egypt would miss their boat to Uruguay due to a storm. The political and economic undercurrents of this World Cup are fascinating in their own right, but this is a podcast about Mexican history, so we will focus on the Mexican participation, but perhaps a future supplemental can flesh out some of these fascinating points in history. After a 1-1 tie friendly match against Luxembourg before the tournament began, Mexico would be drawn in a group with France, Chile, eventual group winners argentina the first game in world cup history would actually be two games as france versus mexico kicked in the estadio positos at the same exact time as the united states versus belgium went underway in the estadio gran parque central france's lucien laurent put the ball past mexican keeper oscar bonfiglio martinez in the 19th minute to become the first goal scorer in world cup history also making Oscar Bonfilio Martinez the first keeper to be scored on in said history. Yay, Mexico! The French would go on to score two more before the end of the half, putting the score at 3-0. The second half started much as the first ended, however, in the 70th minute, the hero of Amsterdam 28, Juan Carreno Lara, once again made history by becoming the first Mexican to score in a World Cup Then, Mexico went on to become the first team to lose a World Cup match along with Belgium, who lost to the U.S. 0-3. Thus, U.S. keeper James Douglas would become the first keeper to hold a clean sheet in the World Cup. Mexico's next game would be against Chile, and Los Rojos would comfortably repeat their victory against Mexico from the Olympic Games two years earlier by beating them 3-0, leaving Mexico to face Argentina on the 19th of July, 1930, in their final match. This game would be notorious for its center referee, Juan Ulises Salcedo, just so happened to be the Bolivian head coach, thus loyalties were in question from the first whistle. The game would be a hard fought affair and things would quickly get violent as the Argentinian squad made the score 3-0 by the 17th minute and the fouls began to fly. A penalty kick would be awarded for Argentina, but blocked by Oscar Bonfiglio Martinez. Then another would be awarded by Bolivian referee Saucedo, this time for Los Verdes, which would be converted by 18-year-old Manuel Rosa Sánchez, also known as Chaquetas. With this goal, young Chaquetas would become the youngest person to score in a World Cup, a title he still holds in Mexican history, and one he would hold on to until a 17-year-old Pele came on against Wales in the 1858 World Cup quarterfinals to change the entire world of football forever. Manuel Chaqueta Rosas, however, is still to this day the second youngest player to score in a World Cup at the grand old age of 18 years and 58 days. The second half of the match would not improve for the Mexicans, however, as the Argentinians came out and scored two more in ten minutes to put the score at 5-1. to one. Mexico made a valiant resurgence in the 65th minute when they were again awarded a penalty by the Bolivian head coach, I mean referee, to the outrage of the Argentinian bench. Although the penalty shot was blocked by keeper Ángel Basio, the rebound was tucked away by Chaquetas, thus making Chaquetas Mexico's first goleador, or top goal scorer in a World Cup, and first to score more than one goal in a game. However, it would be too little too late, and the Albiceleste of Argentina would put the nail in the coffin with their sixth goal in the 80th minute, with the final result of 6-3, after a very physical game in the wet grounds of the Estadio Centenario. Chaquetas also holds the dubious honor of being the first player to score an own goal in a World Cup match when he put the ball past his own net in a 3-0 loss to Chile a few days earlier. The Albiceleste of Argentina, however, would not have the last laugh in this tournament as they would lose to the host Uruguay 4-2 in a final that was so contentious that Belgian head referee John Longanes only agreed to arbitrate hours before the match started, and could only be convinced after he was guaranteed a boat would be awaiting him in the docks the moment the final whistle was blown, just in case the 93,000 fans that had come to watch the final did not like his performance and he needed to make a speedy getaway. And so, this would be the end of Mexico's first World Cup participation. Although they had not won a single match, they had managed to score against some pretty good teams, and so spirits were high that in the next tournament, in 34, set to be held in Italy, would hopefully see the national team do even better. Mexico felt pretty confident that they would qualify for the tournament, given their results in the qualifying round against Cuba, which saw them win all three scheduled games, at a combined score of 15-2. However... FIFA threw them an unexpected curveball when the United States agreed to enter the competition at the very last minute, and the organizers determined that Mexico had to play the financially unsure U.S. team comprising of players mostly from Pennsylvania in order to determine who would represent North America. Given no other choice, the already assembled in Rome for the tournament Mexico, faced off against a relatively amateur U.S. team coached by then-president of the U.S. Football Association, Elmer Schroeder. Schroeder scraped together whatever team he could, calling up elements from such teams as the Pawtucket Rangers, Sticks, Bauer, and Fuller, FC, and the Philadelphia German-Americans. From this last team came the revelation of this 1934 squad, Aldo, the little truck, Donnelly. A 170-pound, five-foot-seven center forward, born on July 22, 1907, in a town in western Pennsylvania just outside of Pittsburgh, known as Morgan. He had been discovered bouncing around the local Penn circuit, playing during his off time on the weekends while attending Duquesne University, and became a prolific scorer on the various teams he played for, including the Pittsburgh Steelers when they also had a soccer team. The select team that Schroeder brought to Rome on May 5, 1934, on paper, did not seem to stack up to their opponents, a fact that started to become apparent after they reportedly began training at A.S. Roma's training ground the next day by playing baseball, indicative of the perceived preparedness of this U.S. side. The little truck Donnelly, called so because of his wide physique despite his short stature, would start the day on the reserves list, But after shining in the early scrimmages, which featured a number of A.S. Roma players, he was moved to the starting 11 after the Babe Ruth of American soccer himself, one Billy Gonzalez, recognized the young Donnelly's undeniable talents and told Coach Schroeder he wouldn't play a single match unless Donnelly was on the starting 11 against Mexico. And so the little truck would get the nod for this single elimination qualification match held on the 24th of May, 1934, against El Tri, three days before the opening ceremony of the tournament, mind you. The thing that made Donnelly stand out was best described by Tony Serino's book, U.S. Soccer vs. the World. Quote Habitually, he ran all along the front of the attack, moving to the right and left and dropping back. His style was unusual for a center forward who according to the 235 of the period should station himself permanently in the penalty area." End quote. After both teams were received by the Pontifex Maximus Pope Pius XI himself the two sides would meet for the first in a long and storied history of friendly and never controversial or violent confrontations held at the absolutely inviting Stadio Nazionale de Partido Nacional Fascista the national stadium of the National Fascist Party. And isn't the double usage of national just the most delicious example of fascist redundancy? The crowd, numbering nearly 10,000 that day, included the likes of Benito Mussolini and American ambassador Breckenridge Long. As the match started, the Mexican side looked the more skilled and practiced team. However, the physicality of the men in red, white, and blue was apparent, and 15 minutes into the match, the little truck made his first impact on the pitch by scoring off a long cross from right-back Edward Zerkovich, who had intercepted the ball from a short Mexican pass. The Newark Star-Ledger reporter Tom Connell would write about the occasion describing the goal as, he avoided one opponent, another fell as he ran after him, and Donnelly had no problem beating the goalie, 1-0. It would be a long day in the office for Mexican goalkeeper Rafael Navarro. Mexican hopes were raised when, seven minutes later, Manuel Alonso equalized for the men in green, white, and red to level the score 1-1. But these hopes were soon dashed when, ten minutes later, U.S. left wing William McLean combined with an uncontainable Donnelly to fire a low shot past the ankles of Rafael Navarro in the 32nd to put the Yankees back up 2-1. The fate of the match seemed to be all but sealed when 14 minutes into the start of the second half, seemingly running out of ideas on how to stop the young American talent, Mexico's Lorenzo Camarena was ejected out of the game for pulling down the little truck as he was once again one on one against the keeper Navarro, leaving Mexico down an extremely crucial man for the last half hour of the match. With this man advantage, Donnelly and his team of stars and stripes pressed the advance And in the 74th minute, he received a pass from inside right Werner Nilsson and peeled away from the mark of his two stunned defenders desperately trying to mark him as he blasted a cannonball of a shot that left the poor Mexican goalkeeper cemented to the spot and the scoreline read 3-1 USA. Again, the Mexicans were given a blip of hope when Dionisio Mejia scored a minute later to put them within one at 3-2. However, Donnelly was not done and completed his hat-trick by scoring in the 87th minute with a surprise shot that found its way through the forest of Mexican defender legs and into Navarro's net, ending both the match and Mexico's hope of participating in the second World Cup in one phenomenal performance of football. This would be the last time the U.S. beat Mexico for 46 years going winless for the next 26 meetings until a 2-1 victory in Fort Lauderdale, Florida on November 23, 1980, would break the streak. Again, a World Cup qualification match. The New York Times wrote on the 25th of May, 1934, of the event, highlighting the disparity between the players as the biggest contributing factor, by writing, quote, The Mexican players appeared to be technically superior to the Americans, but they were all of much lighter build and were obliged to yield to the more vigorous game of their heavier opponents. Don't forget the little truck that helped pull them most of the way towards that victory. The US would go on from this surprising victory, only to be knocked out of the only version of the tournament that did not follow a group stage format, and instead was a single elimination bracket style type of tournament. They would be paired up with the host nation and Benito Mussolini's own hand-picked Italian squad which handed the North Americans a painful 7-1 loss, with the U.S.'s only goal coming from, you guessed it, Aldo the Little Truck Donnelly. This saw the team soon following their North American neighbors, Mexico, back to the Western Hemisphere, after a brief tour of friendlies in Italy and Germany, and not before Donnelly was offered several, and not before Donnelly was offered several playing deals with some of these high-profile European clubs at the time offers which he turned down, opting to return to America and although he never played for the national side again, he would enjoy a long coaching career in college and professional American football. On behalf of every Mexican soccer fan, I'd like to thank Aldo The Little Truck Donnelly from the bottom of my heart for literally coming out of nowhere to knock my beloved country out of the 1934 World Cup before it even began, then disappearing from soccer completely to go to play another sport altogether. Thank you, little truck. Thank you. But despite my sarcastic lamentations, the world truly missed out on what might have been one of the most revolutionary forwards of his time had he only stuck with the soccer ball and not opted instead to throw around an egg, but to each their own. And we can only imagine the impact his new approach to attacking might have had on the developing styles of the professional and international games. As for Mexico, this would be the last World Cup they would participate in for 16 years. Mexico would first refuse to participate in the qualification of the 1938 World Cup, likely in protest to FIFA's controversial call forcing Mexico to play against the U.S. side of Coach Schroeder, Captain Billy Gonzalez, and breakout star the little truck Donnelly in order to qualify, the move still leaving a bad aftertaste in the Mexican Soccer Federation's mouth. Their second World Cup absence in a row would allow Cuba to automatically qualify and participate in the first French iteration of the tournament, which saw Italy win back-to-back trophies, making it the first of two countries in history to accomplish the feat, and the second we will also meet in this episode. The outbreak of World War II during the years of 1939 through 1947 would see no World Cups take place, given the large number of soldiers with tanks and guns rampaging across Europe and the Pacific. Mexico instead would stick to its own neighborhood during these years and participated mostly in the Central American and Caribbean Games where it would come to dominate and establish itself as a regional powerhouse of the North Americas. Mexico's initial participation would be in the third iteration of the Central American and Caribbean games, held in El Salvador in 1935. Mexico would tear out of the gates, thrashing the Salvadorian hosts 8-1 to in its debut on the 27th of March, 1935. Mexico continued their winning form into the next game, going on to cruise to a 5-1 victory against Guatemala, then 6-1 against Cuba, 8-2 against Honduras, and capping an incredibly strong run with a 2-0 victory over Costa Rica in the finals to take the gold medal back to Mexico City. This would be Mexico's first taste of international glory, and what makes it more interesting is the fact that most of the squad, save for one player each from Club América, España, and Atlante FC, were members of the Mexican soccer club known as NECAXA, so I must take a second to talk about them, for this golden generation would define this era as the Eleven Brothers period of Mexican soccer. NECAXA was founded by Scottish engineer William H. Fraser on August 21, 1923. He owned the Light and Power Company in the state of Puebla, which is located just east of Mexico City and combined his growing amateur team with that of the local streetcar operators to form the Light and Power Company and Streetcar Operators Club. Thankfully, at this time, the Mexican government would not allow teams to be named after companies, so William Fraser was forced to ditch his overly complex name in favor of the name of a local river, El Río Necaxas, which means Sounds in the Water, or Sounds in the Depths, in the local Totonac language. Necaxa's early years in the league would be quiet, however, it slowly began to grow in popularity as it formed a historic rivalry with fellow Mexican city team Atlante FC, the team Juan Carreno Lara, he of the first Mexican World Cup soccer goal, hailed from. By the time of the Central American and Caribbean Games of 1935 in El Salvador rolled around, Nacaxa had won the title of national champions four times and and was currently living in a period nicknamed the Once Hermanos, or the Eleven Brothers, period, named for the camaraderie the players displayed and how they combined and played with one another as if they were a family. This team would dominate the 1935-1936 season, winning titles ranging from champion of champions, champion of the major league of the city, national champions, and the aforementioned title in El Salvador of Central American champions. Having snubbed FIFA for the 1938 World Cup, Mexico played a series of friendlies for the three years between the 3rd and 4th Central American and Caribbean games to be held in Panama the year of 1938. These would include a series of matches against burgeoning rival United States, winning both games 7-2 and 7-3 in a bit of revenge for being knocked out of Italy 34 back in Rome. At these fourth Central American games, Mexico would repeat their strong showing of the last tournament with the Necaxa team once again front and center and their Once Hermanos style of play in full force. They would defeat first-time competitors Colombia 3-1 and Venezuela, which proved a tougher nut to crack, but still went down to the Puebla-led squad 1-0. Next, El Salvador would suffer a 6-0 thumping, and the only signs of real resistance seemed to come from the host, Panamá, who tied the undefeated Mexicans 2-2. This would set up a rematch of the final in the Estadio Flor Blanca in San Salvador three years earlier between Los Verdes of Mexico and Los Ticos of Costa Rica. This time around, the match would be hosted at the Estadio Olímpicos in Ciudad de Panamá on the 23rd of February 1938, but just like in 35, the day would go to the Necaxa-based squad and a 2-1 victory would crown them gold medalists for the second time in a row. Mexico, and the Pueblan side Necaxa specifically, had officially declared to the world who were the masters of Central America. This period of the Eleven Brothers would also see the early rise of a young 17-year-old Horacio Casarín, known as El Camacho, the future soccer megastar who would begin to make waves within the Nagaxa squad as soon as he joined in 1936, and he almost immediately became one of the most popular players of his generation. His skills were so explosive and frustrating for rival teams to defend against, that in 1938 it precipitated a violent incident between Nacaxa and their bitter Mexico City rivals, Asturias FC. The two teams at this point were first and second in the standings, with second place Nacaxa needing nothing less than a win if it wanted to stay in the race, so you can imagine the crowd's atmosphere in the stands was one of absolute class and reservation. Just kidding, they were mad and crazy soccer fans, what did you expect? The story goes that El Camacho Casarin scored a goal within the opening minutes of the match, prompting the Asturias defender Carlos Laviada to just give up on properly marking him and opted instead to foul him mercilessly, taking considerable rage and frustration out on El Camacho's knees. Next, Negro Leon took his whack at the Necaxan Star, and finally, after José Soto had once again connected with Casarin's battered knee, the barrage finally had its intended effect and Casarín would be subbed off in the 22nd minute, limping, barely able to walk on his own, and unable to continue the match. His injury would leave him out of the game for a year and a half. The Nacaxa fans, needless to say, were a bit outraged, and center referee Fernando Marcos Gonzalez did nothing to ease tensions by merely wagging his finger at the offending José Soto and simply warning the Asturias players to knock it off, please then went on to call a penalty kick in favor of Asturias in the last minutes of the game. The converted goal would tie the game at 2-all, and that would be that. The tie clinched the race for Asturias and knocked Necaxa out of contention for the title. As the final whistle blew, the Necaxa fans weren't just mad, they were apoplectic, and began lighting papers and programs on fire, throwing them at the referee and Asturias defenders as they tried to leave the field. Now, this was a stadium built in the early 1900s, so I'll give you one guess as to what the main building material was. That's right, wood. So all along the stadium, fires began breaking out, and soon the primarily wooden home stadium of Asturias FC was engulfed in a raging inferno. The fire department managed to show up, but the pumps that supplied water were found empty, And by the time they had secured some actual water, it all seemed too little too late to save a single seat. Within an hour, the entire structure had been reduced to a smoldering ruin. Talk about fiery passion. I think it would be safe to say that the football craze had officially taken hold of Mexico. We should also keep the name of El Camacho Casarin in the back of our minds as he will come up again very shortly. But this episode in early Mexican soccer is indicative of both the growing popularity of the sport and passion of its fans, but also the lack of proper infrastructure and administration that would deny it from taking the next steps into professionally organized competition. Necaxa and Horacio Cacerín's meteoric rise internationally would likely have continued had events in Europe not put the normal proceedings of the world on pause so that everyone could go to war. Friendlies did sp- friendlies did occur sporadically, but all in all, the international competitive scene would lie dormant for nine years, as Europe and the Pacific burned. After hostilities cooled down and everyone settled in for a much colder brand of war, the Soccer Federations of Mexico, the United States, and Cuba decided to organize under the NAFC, the North American Football Confederation, one of the earliest predecessors of the modern-day CONCACAF. In order to celebrate this union, Cuba would be selected to host the first NAFC Cup tournament in 1947, which would host a grand total of three competing countries, that is Mexico, the United States, and Cuba. Mexico would continue their North American domination by dispatching the US 5-0 on the 13th of July, and then four days later took ultimate glory when they beat host Cuba 3-1 proudly crowning themselves champions of North America. I mean, yeah, sort of, kind of. Canada was still getting over its recent breakup with Britain, so it didn't participate. Meanwhile, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, Panama, and Costa Rica would all be busy recovering from the financial toll the World War had taken on the global economy. Plus, many of their players had gone to Europe to fight the Nazis and their populations had not yet managed to replenish some of their squad's lists. Moreover, this time would signal a shift from the rough-and-tumble amateurism that had been dominating the sport up until now, and really began emphasizing the professionalism of players, meaning smaller countries who did not have the resources to keep up with this professionalization of the sport, would begin to sadly fall behind in terms of skill and success, a gap that is still being closed to this day. So while technically only three teams participated in this tournament, they were the three most prepared teams in the region. So yeah, I guess Mexico once again had established its title as local king of soccer, despite the years of bitter fighting in the European and Asian continents. With this title easily bagged, Mexico would go into the London Olympic Games of 1948, the first Olympic Games since the war, confident that they would perform well and might even advance fairly far. Confidence which was immediately dashed on August the 2nd in the opening round when Mexico met a Korean squad that took absolutely no prisoners and gave them an absolute beating with Mexico managing to score some consolation goals in the closing minutes. However, the Koreans still handed Los Verdes a convincing 5-3 defeat, notably with the Mexican goal scored by club español forward Raul Cárdenas who would go on to have an equally successful career coaching Mexico City club Cruz Azul and the Mexican national team on four separate occasions. This would knock El Tri out of the single elimination style tournament, which would ultimately be won by Sweden, meaning Mexico would have to wait two years for the next World Cup, Brazil 1950, to try and win back some international redemption. El Tri would enjoy an undefeated run in the qualifying rounds of Brazil 1950 against the same United States and Cuban sides that were defeated in the NAFC Cup three years prior. Thus, after 20 years and missing two slightly corrupt World Cups, Mexico would be back on the sport's biggest stage since 1930 and like in the inaugural tournament, Mexico would be drawn to play in the opening game, this time against the host, Brazil who would go on to samba circles around their visitors, 4-0, in front of their 10,000 screaming and cheering home fans at the iconic Maracanã Stadium. The next match did not go much better, with Yugoslavia defeating Mexico 4-1, and Hector Ortiz scoring the only goal for the North American side. The final game would be against Switzerland, and although they lost for a third time, they managed to keep the game closer than the last two with a final score of two to one. The lone Mexican goal coming in the final moments of the match from a now fully resurgent Horacio El Camacho Casarin, ending a disappointing return to the competition for Mexico after another first round exit without earning a single point. Casarin meanwhile had not been idle at Nacaxa during the war and played for them until nineteen forty two where he moved to Atlante FC, where his star and stock really began to rise. With Atlante, Casarín would net 95 total goals, helping the Potros win the 1946-1947 season, and El Camacho cemented his popularity when he was cast a star in the 1946 in the Joaquín Pardavé film called Los Hijos de Don Venancio. Called Los Hijos de Don Venancios or the Sons de Don Venancio, The movie would be the first mexican film to feature the sport and is a can't miss for any lovers of mexican cinema and soccer history as it features actual film from real games spliced with acted scenes to tell part of its story it provides a rare glimpse into the early years of el fútbol mexicano during these formative times the plot itself revolves around the titular don venancio played by the director joaquin bardave And his sons who burned down his business while he is on a pilgrimage to Spain attempting to reconnect with his heritage. Casarín was cast as one of the sons who attempted to raise funds for his father's burnt down business by playing for Atlante FC and attempting to earn an international contract to raise money for his father's ruined business. The movie was a critical success and Casarín's involvement helped propel it to national fame prompting a sequel to be greenlit years later called Los Nietos, or the grandchildren de Don Venancio. Life soon seemed to want to imitate art, as Horacio was offered a contract for Spanish giants Barcelona, but unfortunately the job did not offer enough money to live, meaning Cacerín had sold his car to make the trip to Spain for nothing and ended up playing only a handful of friendlies with the Catalan squad. This would be a problem faced by the majority of players during this time as the sport had not yet transitioned into a professional model, and payment for players was rarely enough to support the player, let alone any aspirational wife or number of children. Many teams, having been formed by businesses and companies, would seek workarounds to these issues. For example, Necaxa would pay their amateur players by offering them actual jobs in the light bulb factory. However, these jobs were low-waged, and barely provided any sort of livable income. A tough era to be a soccer pro indeed. Despite his international failures in Spain, Real Club Español would welcome El Camacho upon his return to Mexico, and in 1950 he would gear up to fulfill his lifelong dream of playing for the national squad, having earned enough recognition on the pitch and silver screen to earn him his cap in 1950 allowing him to score his international consolation goal in the loss to Switzerland. He would return from this disappointing World Cup run to again play for Nikaxa in the 1950-51 season, but it seemed his best playing years were beginning to wane. The following season, he would take a short hiatus from the sport, but returned in 1952 as a player coach. A natural trajectory in those days for any aging player hoping to transition into a more managerial role in their careers. This, however, did not pan out as he had hoped, and El Camacho would go on to work as a salesman for medicines, properties, cars, really anything he could to get by, oftentimes using his name and recognition to close deals. Horacio's fortunes would finally turn for the better. When he hit the lottery by literally winning the lottery after buying a ticket for the most cliché reason imaginable, the number was his birthday. He would spend the earnings on an apartment complex and a car lot which he would live off of for the rest of his life. He would leave the sport with 238 total league goals, a record when he retired in 1952, and a number that currently sits in 5th overall, still on the board 70 long years later. He would play an immensely important part in the early development of professionalism in the sport, and his contribution to Mexican soccer cannot be overstated or forgotten. Getting back to the national squad itself, despite its struggles at the World Cup, Mexico still desired to prove itself internationally, but its options for serious competition were minimal. In an effort to boost the unity of football in the Americas and give themselves some more opponents to play, Mexico launched the first of three Pan American Championships of football, with the idea being to imitate the World Cup format of a tournament held every four years only limited to the countries of the Americas, with the region split up between South America, North America, Central America, and the Caribbeans. The first country to host these games would be Chile, and it would be held between the months of March and April 1952. The tournament did not receive enough teams to mimic the World Cup format they sought, so all the participating teams, Chile, Panama, Peru, Uruguay, Brazil, and Mexico, would play each other, and the winner would be the team with the best record after five games. Mexico managed to avoid being the worst team in the tournament by coming in fifth after losing to everyone except Panama, a poor showing for a national team that had recently shown such promise. However, the tournament was important in that the South American countries brought such incredibly strong teams, proving how seriously they took this competition, and it allowed the North American squads to gain some valuable experience playing teams of such high caliber, making them realize just where exactly the international bar was being set. Mexico's next crack at international fame would come in the 1954 World Cup held in Switzerland which Mexico would breeze through the qualifying of by easily winning their two games in both the U.S. and I.D. They would, however, once again be drawn in a group with Brazil, along with the flashback of the 1930 tournament by drawing in France as well. The tournament this time would be unique in that rather than a stage where every team played each other once, as was the procedure in every other tournament, Each team would instead only play two games, with the top two teams advancing in each group and complicated rules concerning what happened in the event of a tie. This format would be abandoned the moment this tournament was over since its convoluted rules resulted in two repeated matches being played to determine the results of group 2 and 4, an outcome which left absolutely nobody happy. This, however, did not matter much for Mexico, as the results were the same as before, with Mexico taking the to town in a 5-0 warm-up game for the Brazilians. However, Los Verdes managed to put up a much better performance against France, despite going down 1-0 in the ninth minute, then seeing the French double their lead in the 46th minute after an own goal. The Mexicans, however, rallied and managed to tie the game at 2-2 after a 54th-minute goal by Nekaxen forward La Madrid and an 85th minute goal from Guadalajara star Balcazar. Despite this impressive showing, Spanish referee Manuel Asensi would award the French a penalty kick in the 88th minute, which was converted by one of the best players of his generation, Raymond Copa. And that, as they say, was that. Mexico once again headed home without having earned a single point. However, they also left with the encouragement that they had scored twice against the Europeans and on European soil, so their spirits were not entirely doused. As for the tournament itself, the final would see a strong Hungarian side defeated 3-2 by tournament winners West Germany in a breathtaking final known to history as the Miracle of Bern. Mexico's next international move would be to host the second iteration of the Pan American Championship of Football to be held in the months of February and March 1956. The participants again included the five from the last time. However, Uruguay would be replaced by Argentina. Yet the results for Mexico would be the same. A big fat fifth place. However, this time they managed to only lose twice. Tie twice and beat Chile 2 to 1. The following year would be the qualifying season for the 1958 Sweden World Cup, and Mexico would enjoy an undefeated run, winning 5 games against Costa Rica, the US, and newcomers Canada, with the Ticos of Costa Rica handing Mexico the only blemish in their otherwise perfect qualification run, a 1-1 tie, which nonetheless saw Mexico managing to make it to their third tournament in a row. This World Cup for the second time saw Mexico draw with the host nation, along with Wales and Hungary, and Mexico for the third time played in the inaugural game, the first against France in Uruguay, then Brazil in Brazil, and now against Sweden. The Swedes easily took care of Mexico 3-0. to However, on the 11th of June, 1958, the scenes of the first chapter in Mexican glory would unfold on a warm and sunny summer day in Solna, Sweden, as El Tri managed to win their first point by tying Wales 1-1 after an 89th-minute goal from Jaime Belmonte, also known as El Flaco. For this goal, El Flaco would also become known as El Héroe de Solna, were the hero of Solna, and after 28 years and four participations, Mexico had finally managed to earn a single point in the World Cup. Mexico City erupted. The celebrations are said to have lasted for days, and upon his return, Belmonte would sign with the Guadalajara-based club Deportivo Irapuato and took them to soaring heights, scoring 349 total goals for them between the years of 1958 and 1970. In 2012, Belmonte would receive a statue in his honor outside of the Sergio León Chávez Stadium, which he called home when he played for Irapuato. And it is an understatement to say that this was one of the most important goals in Mexican history, right up there with Juan Carreno Lara's two historic firsts, and now with El Flaco Belmonte's 89th minute goal, Mexico, had finally won its first World Cup point ever. This result raised hopes that Mexico would finally qualify for the World Cup's round of 16. However, their Hungarian opponents in the last game of the group stages effectively doused the Mexican hopeful fires with a commanding 4-0 victory, despite political tensions back home, having decimated the previously formidable Hungarian squad, a squad which was still given little trouble by Los Verdes de Mexico. This loss would also see the first of many instances where the Mexican media would turn on the national team. With Jalisco newspaper El Informador writing of the match, quote, Mandaron a la lucha una legión de invalidos. They sent to the fight a legion of invalids, end quote. Gee, real encouraging stuff there, guys. I wonder why they're not motivated to play any better. Despite the early exit from El Mundial, The historic first point would nonetheless be achieved, and Mexico's next challenge would be participating in the third and last iteration of the Pan American Football Championship of 1960, held in Costa Rica. This would be the last iteration of the tournament, due in part to the poor showing from the American countries. Only four would participate in this closing chapter of the Pan American Cup. Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, and host Costa Rica. Mexico would continue its streak in this competition by ending up in second-to-last place, securing third out of four teams by winning against Costa Rica 3-0, which they had also tied along with Brazil 2-2, then lost to Brazil 2-0 and continued another streak of losing to Argentina 3-2 and 2-0. Hooray for traditions. However, at this tournament, Mexico continued to show significant promise and improvement. These were no longer pushover amateur teams that they were sending, but neither were they playing such teams. Brazil had just won the World Cup, and Argentina actually went on to beat them in this tournament, earning first place. The fact that Mexico tied more or less the same Brazil that hoisted the Jules Rimet trophy two years earlier in Stockholm should say something about the improvement that they had seen in those two years. The following year, 1961, was the year before World Cup, which meant Mexico was focused on preparing for the qualifications, so they would head across the ocean to play a series of friendlies against some European teams, most notably winning a promising 2-1 thriller against the Netherlands, then losing against England in a horrible game we will talk about in a bit, but tying both Czechoslovakia and Norway, before returning to face off against Paraguay in the qualifiers. The South American side was forced to play a North American side since Brazil had qualified by winning in the previous World Cup and Chile for hosting the upcoming one. Mexico's fate would be decided by a single goal coming out of the two matches played, a goal scored by the legendary Salvador El Chava Reyes, who we will also talk about in a bit. The national team would again play some local friendlies in further preparation from Chile 62 after returning from Europe, which saw the month of March out with a 1-0 loss to, of course, Argentina. Then in April, facing Colombia in a series of thrillers that saw a miraculous 1-0 victory and a 2-2 result in Colombia, followed by another exciting 1-0 victory in Mexico City. This run of warm-up games was capped off with the rematch against Wales in a repeat of the famous 1958 match in Solna, which this time Mexico won, skyrocketing the hopes and expectations of the team's performance going into Chile 62. The team Mexico put together to send to Chile would be one of the most exciting, skilled and competitive teams not only of their generation, but in the history of the national squad. Starting with the coach Ignacio Treyes Campos, known as Don Nacho Treyes, a seasoned and decorated Guadalajara-born player who moved to Mexico City at a young age and made his footballing debut with the legendary Nacaxa during its Once Hermanos period, playing as a midfielder. After nine years with the Puebla Club, he would move to Club América, then CF Monterrey, and after a brief stint in the U.S. playing for the Chicago Vikings, He returned to Mexico City to play with Atlante FC but retired after suffering a fractured tibia and fibula in his right leg, and this is when his managing career took off. He would manage a string of smaller teams such as Zacatepec and Club Deportivo Marte where he took his teams to win the Mexican domestic league three times. This caught the eye of the National Federation who took him as an assistant coach to Sweden '58 then gave him the keys to the kingdom for the Pan-American Championship in order to give him time to prepare his team for Chile 62. Don Nacho Treyes would hand-select the lineup of a golden generation that had been coming up in the domestic leagues of Mexico. Let's introduce the members of this squad, as the history of Mexican soccer cannot be told without their storied inclusion. The starting keeper and captain would be 32-year-old Mexican City native Antonio Tota Carvajal, also nicknamed El Cinco Copas, or the Five Cups, since he would go on to play keeper for the 1966 World Cup squad, making it his fifth participation in the prestigious tournament since Brazil 1950, setting a record at the time for most World Cup appearances, a record that would stand for nearly 35 years. Defending for all five cups in the back line, we find some of the best defenders of their time, such as Atlas and Cruz Azul defender and veteran of the Sweden 58 run, José Chucho del Muro, who would play alongside Guillermo el Tigre Sepulveda, who played for Las Chivas de Guadalajara during their 1950s and 1960s championship campeonismo period, where they won seven titles within a single decade. He is best remembered by his fans for a heated championship final in 1964 against bitter arch-rivals Club América. After being sent off for a reckless tackle on an América attacker, he took off his shirt and placed it on the pitch, pointing it out to the onlooking América fans, famously stating, Con esta tienen. With this you have enough, said the Tiger. And Las Chivas would go on to beat Las Aguilas del América 2-0 to take the title to Jalisco while Club América would only take home El Tigre's shirt. Another Chivas defender from the Campeonismo team called up to play for Mexico was Jose Gerardo Villegas Taveres, but he is best known by his famous nickname, El Jamaicon Villegas. He is another interesting character of the time, earning his spot on the national squad by playing superb defense alongside fellow teammate El Tigre Sepulveda the two young stars cutting their competitive teeth by playing against legends of the game such as Brazilian world champion Garrincha, who played for Brazilian club Botafogo, and who El Jamaicón Villegas is said to have stopped on numerous occasions while playing for Las Chivas and performing admirably against such talented and decorated opposition. El Jamaicón Villegas' experience with players such as Garrincha would be the reason why, in preparation for the Chile World Cup of 62, Mexico would travel to England in 1961 to play a match against the Three Lions, with coach Ignacio Treyes opting to start second-string keeper Antonio Piolin Mota, much to the trepidation of the young backup goalie. Trelles is said to have reassured the man by telling him how El Jamaicon would be there to guard him, and he had often stopped Carrincha, so there was nothing to worry about. At the end of the match, the final score would be England 8, Mexico 0. So maybe El Piolin Mota had every reason to have been worried. And this is that horrible loss we were talking about earlier. Here, the legend of El Jamaicon truly begins, for in Mexico, calling someone a Jamaicon is a politer way of calling someone a whiner or a crybaby, a nickname Jose Villegas would wear since a young age, apparently due to his crying often as a child. When interviewed by a reporter after this embarrassing 8-0 loss in England and asked what had happened, El Jamaicon is famously said to have answered that he missed his mother, that it had been days since he had enjoyed any Mexican food such as birria, chalupas, or sopes, and that life wasn't worth living if it wasn't in his own country. This supposed exchange would reach the media back in Mexico and spark the accusations that the team, particularly El Jamaicon, had performed so poorly abroad due to being unreasonably homesick, an accusation which would be coined el síndrome del jamaicón, or, as close and scientific a translation as I can come up with, the crybaby syndrome. Many players since have been accused of falling prey to the dreaded crybaby syndrome, as the Mexican media takes particular enjoyment in blaming the players themselves for any bad performance of the national side, regardless of the valiant performances the teams almost always put on. It would fall to Jose El Jamaicón Villegas to hold the honor of birthing this, according to the media, seemingly ingrained Mexican character trait. Next up on the list of defenders taken to Chile 62 would be Raúl Cárdenas de la Vega, a man we already spoke about who scored in the 5-3 loss to the Republic of Korea in the 1948 London Olympics. While his managing career would come to outshine his time on the pitch, He will be of particular interest on the domestic club side and led a very successful playing career for various teams such as Real Club España, Asturias FC, Guadalajara, C.D. Marte, and Puebla before staying at Zacatepec for 10 seasons. Then he began that hinted-at managerial career we will cover at another time. Another member of El Campeonismo team of Guadalajara would be defensive right-back Arturo Charles Rizzo, also known as El Curita Charis, or the Bandaid, He would have such loyalty for his beloved Chivas that when he was put up on the transfer market by a new directive team in 1971 looking to reform the defense, he opted to retire rather than play for any club other than his beloved GOATS. And finally on this list of historic Mexican defenders would be Ignacio El Gallo Jaregui or The Rooster, who played for Atlas de Guadalajara and CF Monterrey and like others on this list, would come back to his playing club of CF Monterrey to launch his coaching debut after his playing career ended in 1970. In the midfield for this historic squad, we find such icons of the game as Club America's defensive midfielder and the Switzerland 54 World Cup veteran, Pedro Najeras. The 1967 Mexico Super Cup champion with Toluca, Pedro Romero Preciado. Necaxa and Club Universidad Nacional player, and later in his career coach for Pumas del UNAM, Cruz Azul, and Toluca, Mario Velarde Velázquez, And finally, Salvador Chavarria, the man whose goal against Paraguay had led Mexico to Chile. An absolute legend with Las Chivas de Guadalajara, forming part of their historic campeonismo squad alongside el Tigre Sepulveda and el Jamaicón Villegas. To the day of recording, he is still the second highest goal scorer of the club with 154 total goals in his long and illustrious career. He had actually netted the game winning goal against Paraguay in the qualifiers that had punched Mexico's ticket to Chile 62. So great would be his contribution to Chivas soccer that his official last game would not come until the clausura or closing tournament of La Liga MX in 2008 when a then 71-year-old Chava Reyes would be officially named to the squad list, ceremoniously coming out to play all of 50 seconds on the 19th of January 2008 in a match against Pumas del UNAM, making him the oldest person to ever play in the Mexican Premier Division. His number eight shirt would be retired by Chivas in 2013 in further recognition of his stellar career. So that would be the midfield that participated in the tournament. Last to cover we have the attackers, and again we find a storied list of strong and successful players, many of whom would continue in the sport as managers of clubs or the national men and youth squads after their playing days were behind them. These players included the likes of Alfredo del Aguila, who played over 150 games for Club América, and had actually scored in the game-winning fixture against the Dutch in the European warm-up matches set up by coach Ignacio Trelles in 1961. Guillermo Ortiz Camarago would play for the club of his father, Necaxa, the legendary Puebla squad of the Once Hermanos, who his father, Marcial El Ranchero Ortiz, was a part of. And the younger Ortiz would make his goal-scoring debut in the 1-0 win against Colombia earlier that year. He would retire soon after this World Cup to pursue a love of American football as well as engineering, going on to achieve some acclaim in both fields. Next up is Felipe Rubel Clava, whose father also played the sport and was known as El Rey or The King, which meant that as soon as young Felipe started kicking a soccer ball, he would be known as El Príncipe or The Prince. He made his name playing for the mules of Club Deportivo Oro de Jalisco, which during this era became a cradle of young talent coming out of the state of Jalisco, El Príncipe Rubel Clava being no exception. Through his explosive attacking, he helped the Guadalajara team to their only historic triumph over the league in the 1962-1963 season, a team that held the national selection's second-string keeper Antonio El Piolin Mota between the goalposts. Forward Alfredo Hernández would come out of Club León and CF Monterrey, while Alberto Beaza came from Club Necaxa and even played a season in the United States for the San Diego Toros. Another player who would debut with Necaxa and play in this legendary Mexican squad would be Antonio Jasso, who was also selected to play in the Central American Games representing Mexico, but in a different sport, this time baseball. He would go on to play and score for Club Zacatepec and Club América, and is most notable for scoring both goals in the 2-1 warm-up match against Wales earlier that year. He would go on to have a highly successful coaching stint for Tigres del UNAM. Finally, we come to the two most fascinating forwards of Don Nacho's men, both strikers coming from the Campeonismo squad of Chivas de Guadalajara, that played during the 1950s and 60s. The first, Isidro Díaz Mejía, was known as El Chololo Díaz, a chololo being slang in those days for a pal or friendly person. And El Chololo Díaz would become very friendly with the back of the net, even scoring in the inaugural game of the now demolished yet iconic Estadio Jalisco, ex-home of the Chivas de Guadalajara, on the 11th of February, 1960. He would be known for his speed down the wing and precise crosses along with dangerous free kicks and corners. All in all, he retired with 58 spectacular goals in his long club career with the rebaño, a Spanish word for a goat, which was the mascot of this Guadalajara squad. Playing alongside this club legend was his equally talented teammate Héctor Hernández García, known as El Chale. He began, as many young Jalisco superstars did in those days, playing with El Oro de Jalisco, the same club as fellow striker Príncipe Rubelclava and second string keeper Antonio El Piolin Mota. However, El Chale Hernandez would jump across town to join Chivas in 1958, and there he would play his best years of soccer, becoming an unstoppable attacking duo with fellow Mexican select Salvador Chava Reyes, the number eight who played a match at age 71. Héctor El Chale Hernández would score 5 against Costa Rica in a friendly, which would prompt the Costa Rican Association of Sports Chroniclers and Announcers to declare El Chale as the symbol of Mexican soccer. After retiring, he would take a stab at coaching, but sadly El Chale would not realize the full potential of his career, as in 1984, while traveling with his then-squad of Los Loros de Colima, or the Canaries of Colima, the bus transporting the team swerved off the road and flipped, with El Chale being the only one to tragically lose his life in the unfortunate accident. Also part of this campeonismo chivas squad, represented in the national Chile 62 squad, would be second backup keeper Jaime El Tubo Gomez. El Tubo, earning his nickname ever since commentator for El Informador, a Jalisco sports journal, Fernando Cortés, commented during the 15-year-old's debut for Chivas that the youth hit the ball con tubo, a saying in Spanish that means with strength or a heck of a lot of force. And since then, el tubo would go on to become one of the icons of the seven-time championship-winning team. He would also become well-known for his on-field shenanigans, one of the most famous incidents coming against crosstown rivals Atlas, where he proceeded to lean against his goalpost to read a magazine, Due to the little trouble the opposing attackers had been giving him all game, these would be the men head coach Ignacio Treyes would count on to help him make history as the team arrived to Viña del Mar, Chile, to prepare for their upcoming fixture against current champions Brazil. The fact that the World Cup was even happening on schedule was a miracle in and of itself since Chile had just suffered the largest earthquake ever on record in 1960 right in the middle of the tournament's preparations. When the Valdivia earthquake struck on the 22nd of May, 1960, it measured a 9.5 on the Richter scale and caused unmeasurable destruction and devastation nationwide. In the face of this disaster, President of the Organization Committee, Carlos Dietborn, famously coined the phrase, Porque nada tenemos, lo haremos todo. Because we have nothing, we will do everything. And indeed, the stadiums and associated infrastructure were rebuilt in record time, and the tournament proceeded on schedule. Sadly, Ditborn himself would not live to see the completion of his all-important project, and the newly built venue at Arica would be renamed in his honor as El Estadio Carlos Ditborn, which bears his name to this day. The tournament would be kicked off on schedule by an uninspiring speech by then-Chilean president Jorge Alessandri, who would be criticized for his cold attitude towards the tournament, even leaving during the opening match between hosts Chile and Switzerland. But despite the stick in the mud that was the Chilean president, the tournament went on. However, this iteration of the competition would be marred by constant violence on the pitch. The worst of these seen in the match between Chile and Italy, which was won by the South Americans 2-0, to zero, but would come to be known as the Battle of Santiago. The incident would be sparked months earlier when two Italian journalists wrote incredibly rude articles about the host nation and its capital city, describing Santiago as, quote, proudly backwards and poverty stricken dump, full of prostitution and crime. Their words, not mine. Now when these articles reached the citizens of this quote-unquote dump, the effects were predictable and 60,000 furious Chilean fans booed and yelled at the Italian players from the moment they walked onto the field. These passionate sentiments were felt by the Chilean players as well, and although the match only saw two Italian players sent off with red cards, both sides spent the duration of the game seemingly less interested in playing a sport and more concerned with finding new and creative ways to harm as many parts of their opponents' bodies as possible. After the final whistle was blown, the Italian players required a police escort to leave the field safely, and perhaps even the country. The Italian newspapers La Nazione and Corriere della Serra, partially to blame for the heated atmosphere in the first place, would put on their best surprised faces and describe the event as pure madness, condemning FIFA for allowing the competition to take place in such a chaotic country with such unruly fans. Meanwhile, the British newspaper The Daily Express wrote of the scenes in Chile as, quote, The tournament shows every sign of developing into a violent bloodbath. Reports read like battlefield dispatches. The Italy vs. West Germany game was described as wrestling and warfare. Indeed, it seems this would have direct effects on the game itself, causing teams to shift to more defensive strategies, consequently dropping the rate of average goals scored per match to 2.78, under 3 for the first time in the tournament's history, and interestingly enough the average has never risen past 3 since this initial dip. Chile 62 would also be the only tournament where an Olympic goal was scored, that is, a goal scored directly from a corner kick. And the historic goal would be scored in the Estadio Carlos Ditborn in Arica, Chile, by Colombian striker Marcos Cole in an absolute thriller of a match against the USSR, which ended 4-4. It would be into this environment that Mexico would begin their Chile run against world champions Brazil and the center of the soccer universe during his time, Pelé alongside a seasoned and fearsome Brazil squad, which also featured one of the tournament's eventual top goal scorers, Garrincha, and newcomer Amarildo, who would earn global recognition when he replaced Pelé after the magical player was injured early in Brazil's second match against Czechoslovakia, forcing the young goat to miss the rest of the tournament, but allowing a relatively unknown, at the time, Amarildo, to come in and take the tournament by storm. Here is a clip of a broadcasting of the match naming the starting 11 that would play most of the upcoming games. Y vamos a ver a la considerada la mejor selección de México en su historia, Carvajal con el número 1 en la portería, 2 Jesús del Muro, 5 Raúl Cárdenas, 3 Guillermo Sepúlveda, el 4 es el jamaicano Villegas, el 8 Chava, el Melón Reyes, el 6 Pedro Nájera, 7 Alfredo del Águila. El 9, Héctor Hernández, el 19, Antonio Jaso, y el 11, Isidoro Chololo Díaz. On the 30th of May, 1962, Mexico's stalwart defense, including El Jamaicón Villegas and El Tigre Sepulveda, would hold Garrincha and Pelé to zeros at the end of the first half, with Antonio Tota Carvajal old five cups, silencing those who predicted a blowout by blocking shot after shot from the talented Brazilians. At times, at least three Mexicans swarmed the electric Pelé, throwing their bodies with wanton disregard for their safety, let alone that of their opponents, in desperate efforts to contain the exciting and dynamic attack of the Brazilian forwards. After the half, however, the Mexican shell would be cracked, and Brazilian striker Zagallo finally broke through in the 56th minute from a pinpoint cross sent by Pelé. What followed in the 73rd minute was Pelé at his best as he received the ball at the top of the box and proceeded to Pelé his way through four Mexican defenders before tucking it into the corner of Carvajal's net. Although they had lost, it was an encouraging loss and one that had surprised experts and pundits for the difficulty Mexico showed at being scored on. People, particularly Mexican people, began hoping that if they could hold world champions Brazil for a whole half, then maybe, just maybe, they could hold Spain a full match. El Tri would come agonizingly close to realizing this dream when on June 3, 1962, Mexico again showed admirable resistance and valor, the likes of which had never been seen in previous World Cup performances. With the backline consisting of El Tigre Sepulveda, José El Chucho del Muro, and Ignacio El Gallo Jareg, all managing to hold the Spanish for 90 long and physical minutes. The Colombian paper El Tiempo, would write on the event, speaking of the heroics of Tota Carvajal, who recorded 32 block shots throughout the entirety of the match. The Spanish players were said to be superior to those of the Aztecs, as the paper affectionately put them, who fought admirably, however failed due to the lack of forwards, with our superstar lineup of forwards left quiet, as the Spanish red tide dominated the midfield, choking the life out of the Mexican attack, to the point that Spanish goalkeeper Carmelo, had a grand total of zero shots blocked. In a last-ditch effort to take the game, Mexico pushed deep into the Spanish box, but lost the ball, which fell to Spanish midfielder Gento, who took on all comers and put his teammate Piero on one-on-one with Carvajal, who, despite being the best player on the field that day, could do nothing as Piero slotted it past him, earning the points for Spain and dashing Mexico's hopes of advancing in one single brush of the laces. Despite another loss, the Mexicans had won over the crowd, with the majority of Chilean fans shouting Mexico, Mexico, and giving Carvajal a standing ovation after the final whistle, leaving the Mexican keeper in tears as he and his battered team walked off their gladiatorial ring. With the Spanish eliminating Mexico from advancing, all that was left was playing for pride in front of a crowd that was fully on their side. As the nearly 10,000 excited fans packed into the Estadio Salito for the third and final match day of Group 3, the predictions looked grim for the Mexican national team warming up on the pitch. Having already lost to the other two teams in their group, their upcoming game against Czechoslovakia was practically considered in the bag for the Czech squad. The Czechs had dispatched Spain 1-0 and held Champions Brazil to a draw despite seeming the better side. Mexico would put themselves in the toughest of situations when 16 seconds into the game, the Czechoslovakian number 14, Václav Masek, scored by making a blistering run down the right side, cutting through the stunned pair of El Chucho del Muro and El Tigre Sepulveda to force El Tota Carvajal to come out and try to close him down, allowing the Czech poacher to fire the ball into the back of the net. 1-0 Czechoslovakia. This 16 second goal would stand as the fastest in the history of the tournament for 40 years until Turkey's Hakan Sakur scored in 11 seconds during the third place match against South Korea in the 2002 World Cup which South Korea was jointly hosting with Japan. All this also means that once again a Mexican keeper had made history by being the fastest person to get scored on in the tournament's history. Hooray Mexico! After the 16 second lightning goal, the commentators had already begun writing the game off and began looking towards the next match, already expecting more of the same brilliance from the Czech attack and more of the same leaks in the Mexican defense coupled with serious inefficiencies going forward. However, something must have snapped in the Mexican players at that moment. Perhaps the realization that this was now just any other game with the weight of advancing off of their shoulders. Or maybe they just unlocked something within themselves that could only be reached by men who no longer have something to lose. Perhaps they finally got over their crybaby syndrome. Who knows? What we do know is that as the whistle sounded to restart the match, a different Mexico began touching the ball. And for 10 minutes, the Czech expectations of a walk in the Prague park began to disappear, as they suddenly appeared slower than their Aztec opponents. Isidor El Chololo Diaz would take the weight of the moment on his back, and as El Chava Reyes launched a venomous cross into the box, Alfredo de Aguila collected the pass with his back to the goal and squared it off to El Chololo Diaz, who simply kissed the ball across the line in the 12th minute to tie the game 1-1. The Czechs advanced, but the Mexican defense, instructed by their stalwart manager, Don Nacho Treyes, was ordered to push all the way up the field, forcing the enemy forwards off sides repeatedly and the Czechoslovakian side had to revert to playing a long ball style that did not suit them at all. Several minutes after the tying goal, Czech forward Pluskal nearly regained the lead for his compatriots, but his header was excellently defended by five cups Carvajal. Time ticked on until the 29th minute when Del Aguila stole the ball in the midfield, left two defenders in the dust, and launched a missile of a shot past the Slavic keeper Soroifant which sent the Mexican fans into absolute euphoria. 2-1 Mexico. Nobody, I mean nobody, saw this coming, much less the Czechoslovakians themselves. With the press coming stronger than ever, the Czechs came out for the second half absolutely determined to try and claw themselves back into this game. The match would be an arduous test of defensive merit for Los Verdes, with admirable performances by Ignacio El Gallo Jaregui in the back and Raúl Cárdenas, however, it seemed inevitable that the Europeans would eventually wear the Mexicans down and seal the tie. Everything would come down to the final minutes of the game when El Chololo Diaz, a stubborn thorn in the sides of the Czechoslovakian defenders throughout the entire game, now made a run in past defense through the left side and attempted to cut inside on a vicious counterattack when Czech defender Lala blocked the ball with his hand, giving Swiss referee Gottfried Dienst no choice but to send Mexico to the penalty spot. The entire Estadio de Sausalito held its breath as Héctor El Chala Hernández, darling of the Chivas de Guadalajara and symbol of Mexican soccer, walked up with the ball to set up for his kick. He took a deep breath, backed up several steps, and took a running start to kick the ball into both the back of Schroef's net and the pages of the history books. 3-1 Mexico. And that would be that. The Czechs had no time to score the two equalizing goals they needed as center referee Gottfried Dienst blew the final whistle to the eruption of 10,648 cheering spectators. El Tri had finally done it. Mexico was still knocked out of the tournament, while the Czechs would go all the way to the finals to once again face off against Brazil. But perhaps this loss to Mexico had shaken the Eastern Europeans, and this time they would lose 3-1 with goals coming from Amaril, the aforementioned breakout star of the tournament, and allowing Brazil to become champions for the second time in a row, the second country to accomplish defeat since Italy did so in the 34-38 tournament, and the last to do so since France missed the opportunity in 2002 when they fell to an unstoppable Lionel Messi and truly ascendant Argentina squad. For Mexico, however, this victory would be etched in the cultural memory of all those who lived through it, and the triumphant result is still remembered fondly and celebrated to this day. When the news of the victory arrived in Mexico City, it is said that the whole city stopped and came, out for near, and came out for a near week-long celebration, almost as if they had won the cup itself. When the news of the victory broke in Mexico City, it is said that the whole city stopped and came out for a near week-long celebration, almost as if they had won the cup itself. The papers the following day ran with the now famous headline, Declaramos la Victoria. We declare victory, and the players who participated in the historic squad would be celebrated in their hometowns for years to come. After 5 World Cups, 13 games, 12 losses, and 1 tie, Mexico had finally defeated an opponent in a World Cup game, and not just any opponent, runners-up to the whole tournament itself. The closest equivalent I can give you to the shock this victory sent around the global footballing community would be compared to the 2002 Qatar World Cup when Saudi Arabia would beat eventual cup winners Argentina 2-0 on match day one of the group stages. Both Argentina and Czechoslovakia would come into the bout as clear favorites to take the whole tournament, and both would be stunned by a Saudi Arabia and Mexican squad playing a quick counter-attacking, high offside sides trapping, non-stop intensity brand of soccer one they had not expected or prepared to play against. It is on this high note where we will leave our story for now. With this victory, the future of Mexican soccer would be bright, and the golden generation of players that won the historic victory would have another shot at glory when they would go and fight for the title of world champions in England 1966. But that will be a story for the next supplemental episode on the Mexican National Squad, or the Mexican Soccer League, The choice can actually be up to you, as I am launching with this episode the official Histories of Mexico Patreon page. I won't go into details in this episode. I will be releasing a short announcement recording, along with this supplemental, for anyone interested in how you can not only support the show, but actually have your voice be heard on what supplemental episodes I work on next, along with other tiers of support with various rewards. So please check that out if you would like to hear more episodes coming out faster. I would like to avoid signing up with the ads as long as possible, and with everyone's help, I can hopefully do just that. But with that, we will end our first supplemental episode. I hope you all enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed writing and recording these. And if you have any corrections, comments, or questions, please direct them to the email, thehistoriesofmexico at gmail.com. As always... Thank you for listening. Gracias y que viva bien. Adiós and goodbye for now. Se cuadra, avanza y... Gol mexicano, amigos. El Águila, Héctor, Héctor dispara y... Gol mexicano! Gol mexicano! El Águila, Apello... adelante, no, lo da y con las manos ha cortado la pelota, el número dos, dando el gol, se cuadra, avanza y...